I teach introductory statistics to clinical students, and I often use research articles to demonstrate the concepts that we cover in class. Once I recall, I was teaching z-scores, which is basically a way of taking a distribution of values and translating it into a different system that can identify how far from the mean each observation lies. In any event, we were using a study that looked at the association between cataracts as a measure of oxidative stress and cognitive function. And I recall the researchers collected a ton of different measures on cognitive function. Some of these included the telephone interview for cognitive status, verbal memory, immediate and delayed paragraph recall using the East Boston memory test, verbal fluency, digit span backwards tests, etc. And I recall thinking, wow, this sounds pretty intensive. And I'd be really bad to few these measures. But these are the tools that we use to assess cognitive function and how we go about identifying dementia in studies. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory, a podcast devoted to exploring research on Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. Now, we don't cover politics on this podcast, luckily, but cognitive assessment was brought up in the media a year or two ago when President Trump took a cognitive test. This was the whole person, woman, man, camera, TV thing. But in all seriousness, though, it was the first time I can recall the public was aware of what a clinical test for cognitive function actually was like. And to me, it sounds very similar to some of the tests that we use in studies. So Donovan, before we kind of jump in today, I was wondering if you can help us distinguish between how cognitive impairment is diagnosed in the clinical setting versus how we go about identifying it in studies. Yeah, so that's a really complicated issue. I guess the first question is whether it's diagnosed in clinical settings at all. Uh, so hopefully, yes, uh, it is considered and, and uh, there is a cognitive assessment for older adults. And I guess how that diagnosis and assessment happens can vary a lot on the setting, the type of clinical setting. Are you inpatient or outpatient? Are you seeing a primary care provider or a neurologist or a psychiatrist? Um, so what we're really interested in thinking about specifically is dementia. Um, and that's part of what we're um uh, talking about today. And so when I think about dementia, there are a couple, there are a variety of criteria that folks say at the National Institutes of Health and the Alzheimer's Association have come up uh, that we want people to, people need to meet these criteria to get a diagnosis of dementia. Um, and so the most important thing is that it represents a decline in the person's cognition over time, uh, that the decline can't be um, accounted for or explained by something like delirium or another type of a psychiatric illness. Um, so then what type of decline are we talking about? So it can be different. Most people think about a decline in memory, but actually to be diagnosed with dementia, it doesn't have to be in memory. It can be in like reasoning or more sort of complicated cognitive tasks. It can be in visual, visual, spatial ability. Uh, so like drawing two interlocking, uh, pentagons. Um, it can be in language. It can even be in personality or behavior. So you basically need deterioration in at least two of these domains, one of which could be memory, but doesn't have to be memory. Uh, usually people will get uh, some lab work and neuroimaging as part of a workup of uh, cognitive impairment. Although honestly, that's more these days is used to rule out other conditions than it is to say, oh, if we find this on your MRI, you definitely have dementia. That usually is not how the imaging or the lab work works. Um, 
So it's a, it's a pretty complicated thing actually to get a, a diagnosis in a clinical setting. And obviously what we can get out of a survey, like what we're going to learn about today, um, is more of just like a snapshot picture in time. And it's kind of um, our, our guesstimate uh, at whether or not somebody has cognitive impairment or not. Are the questionnaires specifically used in the clinical setting, are they part of like a standard workup? I mean, would every older adult get them or do you only get those questionnaires if you have some kind of sign that could be related to cognitive function? Right. So it totally depends. Um, in theory, as part of what's called the Medicare uh, annual wellness checkup, there should be a cognitive assessment included as part of that. Usually, so what primary care providers are using um, needs to be really brief because they have so little time. And so what your primary care doctor, say, might give your 75-year-old uh, parent would be a very different thing than the type of diagnostic workup you'd get if you were going to a memory center um, for a workup for whether or not you have dementia. And those um, assessments can can actually take hours. So it really, really depends on like what's the setting and what's the purpose of uh, of of the screen or the testing that you're doing. Now I'm just curious, like again, focusing on the on the questionnaires to assess cognitive functioning both in the clinic and some of the ones we're going to talk about today in terms of research, you know, we, we like to distinguish between subjective and objective measurements and studies. I'm just curious, like, would you consider, you know, a survey, a validated survey to assess cognitive function as like more of an objective measurement or maybe even quasi objective? No, I definitely see that as more objective. And it is really important because, for example, for myself as a psychiatrist, oftentimes we'll see folks who come into the clinic who are there with a complaint about their memory. But when you actually do a memory assessment, they might be doing fine. It might actually be that they're depressed or they're anxious. And so they're... Um, their depression or their anxiety is what's interfering with their memory. But when you actually test them objectively, their memory is fine. And so this type of data is really important to help understand clinically what's going on. The other thing, which we'll get into, I think, in another episode, perhaps, um, is that actually for family members, this can be really, really important where maybe actually a family member doesn't think there's any type of a cognitive problem. And then when their loved one uh, has some of this testing, sometimes it happens in front of them, it, it can really actually be pretty eye-opening to help people understand um, if, if there is, in fact, some memory change or cognitive impairment that's that's present that maybe they hadn't fully appreciated. One of the places that many of us go to in terms of getting data on cognitive status among older adults is the health and retirement study. And the primary measure that's used in that study to assess cognitive function is known as the telephone interview for cognitive status. It's basically a set of questions that are scored and turned into a numeric value. And then later, we can sort of use that numeric score in a number of different ways to identify cognitive impairment. So researchers that use just the values of the variable on cognitive assessment sometimes can be a little detached from what's really going on. So in this episode, we thought we'd try administering the ticks to see how it really works. And in doing so, get a look at what's behind the numbers. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Ryan. Lindsay is an associate research scientist at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, what we call ISR for short. Her PhD is in human development, and her own research investigates contextual influences on psychological well-being, physical health, and cognition related to aging. 
In her position at ISR, Lindsay oversees the administration of the telephone interview for cognitive status. She's kindly agreed to join us today to provide a little coaching to me as I try administering the ticks to Donovan. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Before I try administering the ticks, can you tell us a little about the history of the use of the ticks in the health and retirement study? Sure. Um, so, you know, traditionally, uh, most cognitive measures were developed for in-person testing. And in large national samples, it's very expensive and hard to uh, do household visits, have people come in. And so the HRS, which is a very large nationally representative study, um, in their early waves was done primarily over the phone, but they wanted to incorporate measures of cognition and cognitive status. Um, and thankfully, uh, about four years before the, the first wave um, of HRS, which was in 1992, um, there was a publication in 1988 that introduced the TICS measure that, that you're referencing earlier. Um, and Again, this was developed to be basically a kind of like a telephone version of the MMSE, which is another very standard, frequently used measure of cognitive status. And what does that stand for? The mini mental state exam. And so, you know, the interest in having something that could be done over the phone really broadens the possibilities for other large scale surveys to collect data. Um, and in the early 90s, uh, you know, there was a lot of work with the ticks. People were excited about it. And they there have been some adaptations from that original version. Um, the original one, for example, didn't have, they had immediate recall, immediate word recall, but not delayed. Um, the, the modified version that came out in 93 added the delayed recall, tweaked some of the questions. Um, so when HRS wanted to incorporate a version of ticks, um, they took Many of those modifications made in 1993 and then also did a few additional uh, tweaks uh, to make it appropriate for our survey context, really. Um, and it's been in there almost from the beginning in one way or the other and has been one of the most um, utilized components of the study. Um, I can go into you know more detail, but that's sort of the general history of, of why it was specifically picked for the for the HRS. And, and how is it administered in the field today, currently? So the goal is to be administered as, in as standardized way as possible. Um, we have hordes of interviewers across the country who do these tests either by phone or in person. Now there's a about half the sample every wave gets gets it done in person. Um, and they're called computer-assisted in-person interviews or computer-assisted telephone interviews. Um, and there's a laptop with a special program, and we have it very highly scripted, which you have seen and will be illustrating later. Um, the biggest difference now in administration is we have started incorporating a web mode to complete the HRS, because some of our, particularly the younger respondents, those in midlife, would like that as an option. And obviously, you don't have the same controls when you don't have an interviewer there. Um, if you want to do the word recall, you can't have an interviewer saying the words out loud. It has to be presented visually. Um, they have to type in responses. So, you know, we've made adaptations where possible, but really the uh, introduction of the web mode has created some of the biggest changes. So Lindsay has sent me the instructions that the HRS staff use when they administer the survey. 
Is there anything I should know before I take a crack at using this? So main tips, you know, we spend a lot of time training our interviewers. It's it's a week of, of training uh, to, to be able to do this properly across the, the whole the whole interview. And it's important not to give any direct positive or negative feedback because there's a lot of science showing that that can affect motivation. If you give them really positive feedback, they're going to possibly try harder. If, if you act like they're getting things incorrect or getting doing things wrong, um, they might be less motivated to continue trying their hardest. So, you know, saying thank you when they're done with the response is a pretty sort of generic without giving away in your face or in your words um, how they're doing. So when Donovan can only like name a few animals, I shouldn't tell him that's really bad. Definitely not. Okay. <laughs> All right. Donovan, are you in character? I, I guess I'm in character. I told when, when Matt suggested that we do this, I uh, told him that I have uh, medical students, when I work with them at the hospital, I'll have them administer a cognitive test to me. I usually don't do very well because I'm like distracted about patient care. Uh, so I'm going to really try and focus and do a better job this time. So it, let's, it, let's see how we do. It does seem like you probably have an advantage having like being familiar with it. But I've, I've actually never done the ticks though. So I've done like the MMSE or, or some of the other ones, but, but never the ticks. So I'm, I'm excited. Okay, let's do it. So I'm going to add a little, um, add a little, a little something just to kind of get in character. So, Mr. Moss, thank you so much for participating in the health and retirement study. Next, we're going to talk about um, things related to your memory. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Is that okay? Uh, sure. Can my wife help me? No, you're on your own. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Here goes into the formal, the formal part of this. I'll read a set of ten words and ask you to recall as many as you can. We have purposefully made the list long, so that'll be difficult for anybody to recall all the words. Most people recall just a few. Please listen carefully as I read the set of words because I cannot repeat them. When I finish, I will ask you to recall aloud as many of the words as you can in any order. Is this clear? Yes, and I'm super nervous, but go ahead. Okay. All right, here we go. Hotel, river, tree, Skin, gold, market, paper, child, king, book. Hotel, river, tree, skin, gold, market, paper, book. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you to think about the past week and the feelings that you have experienced. Please tell me if each of the following was true for you much of the time during the past week. So much of the time during the past week, you felt depressed. Would you say yes or no? No. Much of the time during the past week, you felt that everything you did was an effort. Would you say yes or no? No. Your sleep was restless. No. You were happy. Yes. You felt lonely. No. You enjoyed your life. Yes. You felt sad. No. You could not get going. No. Okay. For this next question, please try to count backward, backward as quickly as you can from the number that I will give you. I will tell you when to stop. Please start with 20. 
20, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. You may stop 11. now. Thank right. you. Yeah. Now, let's try some subtraction of numbers. 100 minus 7 equals what? 93. And 7 from that? Um, 86, 79, 72, 65. Okay, you're going too fast for me. <laughs> yes. okay. It's a test-retest right. phenomenon. <laughs> okay. Um, a little while ago, I read you a list of words, and you repeated the ones you could remember. Oh, no. Please tell me any of the words that you can remember now. Oh, geez. Um, tree, hotel, human, skin. Mm, that's it. All right, here we go. Uh, we're, we're interested in how memory actually works. Uh, we find that even when people with even even people with very good memories seem to forget things from time to time. The next questions are a little different, but are often asked on studies about memory. Please tell me today's date. What month is it? Uh, it is May. And the day? Uh, Friday. Uh, day of the month? The 14th. And the year? Uh, 2021. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you um, for the names of some people and things. What do people usually use to cut paper? Uh, scissors. What do you call the kind of prickly plant that grows in the desert? A cactus. Who is the president of the United States right now? Biden. Who is the vice president? Harris. Okay. That brings us to the last part of this. Now I want to see how many different animals you can name. You will have 60 seconds. When I say begin, say the animal names as fast as you can. Are you ready? Sure. Begin. Uh, dog, cat, rabbit, deer, crane, cardinal, zebra, hippopotamus, giraffe, elephant, gorilla, monkey, chimpanzee, orangutan, uh, turtle, snake, eel, mm, scorpion, spider. Mm, I should have like uh, stuck with particular habitat. Uh, let's go like cheetah, tiger, lion, rhino, um, flamingo, stork, eagle, vulture, condor, goose, duck. Hummingbird, woodpecker. I'll stop. I think I passed the cutoff. Okay. And that's 55 seconds. So close enough. Okay. And scene. So, <laughs> uh, so, um, so Lindsay, how do we do? And mo more importantly, how's Donovan's cognitive functioning? <laughs> I will say that was an impressive number of animals. And <laughs> I, I was following along and I didn't notice any repeats, um, which is very good. Um, I would say, you know, Matt, you did a really good job enunciating. Your pacing was pretty good. The It takes some practice to do the word list presentation at the accurate pacing. So I was slightly mm -hmm. off. But but again, you, you actually did very well. 
Um, so was Matt a little bit too fast or too slow? What's the pacing supposed to be? Um, it's it's supposed to be about one word every two seconds. Okay. Um, so I would say you were a little bit fast, particularly towards the end. Um, but, you know. My, my students say that I talk too fast, so I'm not surprised. I, I have that problem as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, the one thing I did notice that was interesting is that when you were doing your delayed word recall, there was one intrusion, one word that wasn't on the original list. And it's only because I have the list memorized that I noticed human as a word that wasn't originally read. Um, was is skin a, was skin a word? Yes. I think maybe somehow that yep. connection turned into human. Sure. And you said skin, I think, shortly after human as well. Wow. So, um, but very, very good job. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad I passed. So, so for listeners, that word list is sort of the immediate assessment and the delayed assessment. Delayed. I've seen in other data sets, sometimes they'll do the immediate thing multiple times. Um, but you guys do it once. Yeah, there. So, CIRAD, which is another battery of um, these sorts of tests, they have they call it wordless learning. They do a presentation of one word list w- three different orders, and usually the immediate score is that first presentation. Then you do it another two times. Um, so, in theory, you should have a higher delayed recall when you get multiple presentations. We don't, you know, part of HRS is that it's a very very long interview. Um, we don't have a lot of time to do that um, that sort of presentation. We do do it in some of the sub-studies, but not in the main core. So um, just like in broad strokes, like the questions that I just asked Donovan and the, the things I had him do, how are those kind of turned into that numeric score? Right. So uh, not counting the animal naming at the end, which isn't officially a part of ticks, um, the overall score is out of... 35 total points. Now there's a, a subsection of those questions at the end, starting with the date, naming the date all, all the way through vice president, that they're only asked of respondents on their baseline interview. And then they're asked every wave of those 65 and over, because those are types of measures that you don't expect to decline until people are much older. Um, and so for the whole sample, um, the total possible would be out of 27 points. So for word recall, you have 10 possible words, you have 10 possible points. You either remember the word or you don't. For serial sevens, when he was doing the subtraction, there should be five trials, which he did very quickly. That was impressive. <laughs> um, and again, you get a point for every possible uh, correct response. I think the the trickiest one is backward counting. If, if you do it correctly, on the first try, you get two points. If it takes you a second try, you only get one. But otherwise, it's very straightforward scoring. So in the beginning, uh, there were a number of uh, questions that seemed to be getting at my mood. Is that a part of the ticks? That is not a part of the ticks. Um, it's a an adaptation of the CESD depressive symptom scale. And um from the very beginning of HRS, that was chosen to be part of the the time filler between the immediate and delayed. Hmm. And it's it's important to note because you mentioned this earlier, actually. Um, you know, de- depression can mask can can make uh, someone's cognitive status look worse than it is. Um, and so there there is a slight risk that we're priming people to be a little bit more negative um, hmm. by asking these questions, but. On the plus side, everybody does it the same way. So at least it's consistently administered that way. And again, it, it was done that way from the beginning. So we haven't deviated to make sure that the longitudinal data is consistent. I, I also kind of love how it speaks to the 
like time efficient time pressure of HRS where you're trying to cram so much data collection into as brief a period of time, you know, have it super packed. And so you make use of that wait time to collect other important information. Yeah. I mean, every, every question is in there for a very specific reason. Precious time real estate. Yes. I mean the, you know, the first interview can be up to three hours long with all the things that there are more questions in the baseline interview that don't get asked again, unless something changes, but but yeah, every minute is precious. <laughs> it, it makes so much more sense that you were talking about sort of the speed at which it has to be delivered out. I didn't really think about that in terms of the timing between the immediate and, and delay, mm-hmm. but now it kind of makes sense. And we do have um, timing measures. So if you want to be really precise, you can adjust for possible interviewer differences in immediate and delayed. Um, it's something that's available in the data. Not everybody cares at that level of detail, but it's we do provide that. Well. And, and um, in terms of the scoring, just to be clear, there aren't any kind of bonus points because I think President Trump said he got bonus points for something. And by the way, I didn't realize it until we were looking at the ticks today that I was like, well, he had quite an advantage for a couple of those questions with the president and vice president ones. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure the test he did was what's called the MOCA, which is mm-hmm. a, another version of this that was developed in Canada. Um, I, I don't know of actual bonus scoring. So that's not how I was trained. But, um, but no, within our version, you cannot get bonus points. Sadly. So my, my last question is kind of an open-ended one. You know, I was just wondering, like, in your time working on the health and retirement study, you must have seen like a lot of different things, especially with training people and different implementations. Is there any sort of interesting anecdotes you'd want to share with us regarding the ticks? Well, I, I laughed at the beginning when you asked if your spouse can help um, because you know, I, I don't I don't do the actual interviews, but I've heard from interviewers who say they can hear a, a, a child, like an, a grown child or a spouse in the background, market, you forgot market <laughs> on, on the word list. Um, and, you know, it, it is real. And when we're doing it over the phone, we don't have much control <laughs> over the environment. Um, yeah. In the, also, in the clinic, in the clinic, you always have to say now your you know, your, your daughter or your wife can't help you on this. Like they yeah. have to do it on their own. So I, a few years ago, I don't even remember how it happened, but one of our participants wanted to write a, a little editorial about her experience in this big national study and wanted to interview somebody on the project. And I am the one she talked to. Um, and she told me she was in her mid sixties that she's been in the study for, you know, 10, 15 years. And so every two years, she knows what's coming because it's very consistent. And the week leading up to her interview, she actually creates her own word lists and tests herself in the hopes. Because <laughs> she's like, now that I'm getting older, I'm nervous that I'm not going to do very well. So I, I quiz myself. <laughs> I thought, oh, dear. This is why we, we have practice effects in longitudinal data on cognition. It's a perfect example. I think my, I could see my parents like training themselves for something like this as well. So a lot of individual edge. differences totally. and who yeah. would be worried about that or not. Yeah. Um, and then I guess you, because you did animal naming, um, one of my favorite things to mention is that, you know, you're allowed to do all sorts of subtypes of animals. I noticed you were going in depth on birds. That's all fine. <laughs> I was surprised about the bird responses. You're really specific. I was like uh, thinking about, you know, what I've been seeing outside in the spring. Some people do breeds of dogs, different lizards. It's interesting. Um, But in the, you know, we don't allow fictional creatures like dragons (laughs) or unicorns, but... And we, we do a lot of cross-national work, and some countries, they, they actually do accept that. I, I'm pretty sure in China, they'll take dragon. 
in Ireland, where there's all sorts of different mythology and beliefs, um, they are more uh, accepting of of certain types of creatures that that wouldn't be considered correct in the U.S. Loch Ness monster, if you're in Scotland or yes. something, that's amazing. I mean, do, do you not count insects? I mean, oh no, insects count. Okay. I did. You know, I was getting into some insects, and I was like, wait, no, this isn't an animal. So maybe I I need to go back to. It's not a plant, so it, it would yeah. it would count. That would be a fascinating study to kind of compare culturally the different animals that are listed on the Animal Recall. There's a, there's a study for you, Donovan. Yep. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Ryan and Donovan, for being such a good sport. And as always, thanks to all of you who listened in. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and the data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.